0: Charlotte here a quick note before we get into today's episode you can now vote for us for the listeners choice award at the british podcast awards 2023 it really helps to promote us and the simple fact we can even be voted for blows our minds to vote visit www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting search for demythifying using our full podcast name thank you in advance for your support and back to today's episode
1: Hi, I'm Charlotte and I'm Lauren. Our pronouns are she, her. And this is D Turns the Page, our special episodes where we make our mark, we make sure our story
0: is told, and we hold counsel with Megan Barnard and Jezebel. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm a big fan of your podcast we are big fans of problematic women.
0: So (laughs) you've certainly delivered here. Before we get into your book, could you introduce
2: yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Um, So I'm Megan Barnard. My pronouns are also she, hers. So I am a writer um, of historical fiction primarily. Um, I've worked um, as an editor, as a literary agent in marketing um, for a long time. I went to school for creative writing so this has kind of been the path I've been I've been working on um, on getting a book published for a long time um, I think since I was about 19 so uh close to 12 years um and this is uh Jezebel is my debut novel.
1: What kind of books do you like to read?
2: Oh <laughs> I read I read so much I read I actually I think I read pretty widely I read a lot of historical fiction which makes sense. That's that's really what I write. Um, so writers like Kate Morton, Kate Atkinson, I really love anything kind of ancient historical fiction. So Circe is probably one of my favorite books of all time by Madeline Miller. I mean, like you can, I, I read it and then I was like, um, I need to write something similar to this. Yeah, so that was a, a really important book for me. I read a lot of memoir uh and fantasy. Uh I actually just read actually. This is kind of opposite of that, but I, I just recently read Station Eleven for the first time. It was like, you know, it came out 10 years ago by Emily St. John Mandel. And I was like, OK, the pandemic is, is finally, you know, it, it's getting a bit better where I am. I can now read a pandemic book. And I just it was staggeringly good. Like everything you've ever heard about it is just absolutely true. So I'm definitely going to be reading more of her. I really love Catherine May who wrote Wintering and Enchantment that just came out. That was really helpful for me during the pandemic, embracing the cold weather as well. Um, And then Aaron Morgenstern is one of my favorite writers. The Night Circus and The Starless Sea are both just, oh, just, they just like hit my soul. Also uh, Patrick Rothfuss, you know, Name of the Wind, uh, Wise Man's Fear, hopefully the third book eventually. Um, Yeah, but those are, those are tend to be kind of my favorite. I really like lyrical writing, um, things that tend to be poetic. I read a lot of poetry too, like uh, Seamus Heaney and John Rybicki, things that are just, yeah, that tend to be often nature based. Also, I really like, um, yeah, and historical fiction as well Is pretty much always. I'm usually reading about three books at once. I t- try to read like a nonfiction memoir or something historically based and then often a fantasy at the same time. I don't know how you could do that.
1: No, I, I don't know how people do that.
2: It's quite. It can be difficult. I usually have to stop myself once I hit like five books at once. That's when it gets a bit overwhelming, and I'm like, okay, you gotta gotta calm down. Three, three, I can do but more for four to five, it's like, it can get like, you can forget what books you're actually reading. So <laughs> I'm kind of in awe of you right now that you can do that. Honestly, I just don't have a lot of other hobbies. Like when people are like, oh, what do you do for fun? I'm like, oh, I read. And they're like, you know, but like on Friday night, what do you do? And I'm like, you can get in bed at eight and read. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's what I do. Um, and, and I write too. That's what, you know, I have, I'm married, I have a husband and a dog, but we like to like sit quietly and read together. So it's kind it's kind of ideal.
0: <laughs> I was joking with my boyfriend about how, you know, growing up and being an adult is, a, is kind of bullshit. And when you're younger, it's like, I want to grow up and do whatever I want. I can't wait to do whatever I want. And actually what, what I want to do is to go to bed and read.
2: Honestly, it's, It's so true. Sometimes people will be like, Megan, how much do you, like, how do you read so much? And I'm like, I simply go to bed early. And they're like, but like how? And I'm like, I just, after dinner, I'm like, what if instead of being down here or being out somewhere else, I was in my own bed with my stack of books. And that's just usually what I prefer to be doing.
1: (laughs) We went into this not really knowing too much about Jezebel. And I don't know how much information is out there about her, so we're excited to learn loads from you. What kind of research did you do for a woman that I can't imagine that there's much information about?
2: Yeah, um, so it was it was a really interesting process for me. So I grew up uh, with in a very conservative family um, as a kid, so I grew up hearing a lot of Bible stories. Those were like fairy tales for me, my kind of mythology. Um, so. So I grew up. I, I knew the story of Jezebel from the biblical story, but she's not. She's not in it very much. She's you know, it's maybe three chapters of the whole Bible, and all you hear about her is she's super evil. That that's what you hear. Um. So when when I started looking into this, I was like, what? How how can I find any research? Because again, I want my you know novels to be historically accurate as much as possible. I want to have good grounding. So there was this really excellent um, nonfiction book by the historian uh, Leslie Hazleton called Jezebel, and it's just a book. She she traveled to um, to Israel, I think, and to um, Lebanon, which would be where Tyre now is. And she she researched the area. She looked at Samaria, where um, Ahab and Jezebel's castle would have been. She talked to a bunch of different people. She read, you know, the original sources, and she had a lot of really great, really helpful details. Now, you know, for a story that's over 2,000 years old, we can't ever say, you know, with 100% certainty this would or wouldn't have been something. But we we do gain some understanding from other women at the time that we know of. So I really did a lot of basic research um, from from Leslie Hazleton's book. And then I also, I read a lot of books about Phoenicia at the time, about Tyre, Israel. I le- read a lot of books just about biblical women generally. So like the sources we have from theologians, from, you know, various uh, religious professors. So really I I read what what I could get my hands on, what was available. I read, um I think a book called The History of Tyre that came out maybe 30 years ago. Um, That, that was really important for my understanding of of where Jezebel came from and what she would have gone to and and kind of I wanted it to be you know to have the feeling of when when you're reading the book that you're really in that time period that was really important to me so I wanted to make sure I had as many details correct as I could you know about the purple dye um, and the clothing they would have worn what you know stone the the temples would have been made out of and that's it's really fun for me I minored in history as well so when I get to research I'm like yes research so I have like you know 50 pages of notes you know on this or that and I tend to do that kind of first before I do a lot of writing to kind of it kind of gives me a grounding because then it it can be hard to you know start and then like stop after two minutes and be like what what was that what would that pen have been called how would they have held it so I tend to try to absorb it as much as possible at the beginning write it and then kind of go back and try to fix any errors I have
1: I told my boyfriend that we were doing this book on the podcast and his response was isn't she that biblical whore
0: (laughs) my mine basically said the same thing yeah
2: that's actually, it's a big reason I wanted to, to look into because that's also what I knew, like, The funny thing is, I think like most people know the name Jezebel, but it's used, it's a slur, right? It's someone who's a whore or a slut or a witch, someone who who has loose morals. But as I was thinking about it, I I was really fascinated by the fact that even if it's such a derogatory term, we all still know her name. Like people don't necessarily, they won't know Ahab or Elijah, but most people will at least have heard of Jezebel as a name. And I was really interested in looking into like, was she the whore, the slut that she is portrayed as and in the end if you look Leslie's book goes into it a lot you know she's the a lot of the language that they were using was really it was figurative they weren't actually saying she's she's sleeping around they were not actually saying she's you know actually a prostitute you know it's figurative you know she's prostituting herself for Ahab and Israel and things like that but but if you look really into the story that's not it's not the actual story that that unfolds at all and in fact when Jezebel initially came to Israel when she was 15 when she was married to Ahab it was a very popular marriage because Tyre was really rich they brought a lot of power and Jezebel brought brought wealth with her and again that power connection you know trade routes which were really important at the time
1: why do you think I don't know if you can answer this but why do you think that is what she's been reduced to now we just know her as that biblical whore that actually she wasn't
2: I think it's I think first it's easy to boil someone down into into the worst or best of their life like this wasn't actually her worst but but I think it's easy to do and I think it's really common for people in positions of power specifically royalty and women throughout throughout all time so like for example when we look at when we look at a a man in power king and a woman who's in power queen, we look at them really differently. Like we look at Richard the Lionheart and we call him the Lionheart. We're like, wow, he, he did great stuff. What he actually did was go on crusades and kill thousands of Muslims for God or something like that. And we still think of him in these really positive terms. But when we think of Catherine de' Medici, for example, the thing a lot of people know her as is like the serpent queen. That's, I think it was a show that just came out and that's the title of it. And Catherine de' Medici did Really similar things. She tried to consolidate power. She killed people, but again, it was to keep her family safe. To to do what the men around her did. But we still think of her as as again a witch, a harlot, etc. And I think we think of Jezebel in the same way because it's easy. And also, when we malign women in positions of power, then we don't have to. I feel like we don't have to worry that we got it wrong. We can just be like, they were bad, and let's move forward. But I think people are. Really multifaceted and you can't you know when you actually think about it I I don't think you can boil any one person down to this or that
1: I love the fact you brought up Catherine Dimitri because I do quite love her I did a history degree so I'm a bit of a history nerd and yeah I have a real soft spot for her
2: I love I I love Catherine Dimitri it's kind of absurd I'll, I'll you know you you play those games like um you know, if if you had a dinner party with five people, who who would you have? And Catherine de Medici has always been on my list. And people are like, "Oh, why?" And I'm like, she was very cool and very powerful, and she might have poisoned some people, but we don't know. And I just I think she's a, a fascinating character, and always has been. And I was I I actually one of the another thing I kind of used as some some more basic kind of for for my ideas. Um. Anne Thoreau has this really great series called Queens of Infamy on Longreads, and it's about these famous queens throughout history and what um, what we thought of them. So I think she does Boudica, she does uh, Catherine de Medici, she does maybe Anne Boleyn. She she does a lot of really interesting and powerful figures. Um, and when you look at them again, you see so many similar things either these are women who were who are really maligned who 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 we've just we love to hate and when you actually look at their stories you see okay they were powerful they were smart they were cunning they were more than the children they bore or the way in which they were murdered often
0: who was the cover designer because they need a raise this cover is gorgeous the more I look at it the more I find
2: yeah, so the cover was designed by Jim Tierney, who is an absolutely just stunning artist. When <laughs> when I first got the cover, I was um, I was actually abroad for a work trip and it was it was something like midnight. I, I checked my email one last time because anytime you do anything in the peripherals of publishing, you have to check your email at least like 60 million times a day. And so I checked it and I, and I opened it and it was the first cover I'd seen. I hadn't seen any sketches. And I just started crying because it was, ex- it, the cover hasn't changed since then. It was so perfect. And I, I think it captured the spirit of Jezebel so much. And the, you know, the purple on the cover matches the tyrrhenian purple. Like I, I did send my editor, I was like, this is kind of what the purple would have looked like. It would be great if we can incorporate that and incorporate gold. And I really wanted it to be bold because Jezebel is such a bold person. Yeah, and and I saw it and I just, honestly, I look at it so often. I like, I keep a copy by my bed. I keep a copy on my desk. I just, I always have it with me. And sometimes I'm just like, I I show my husband, I'm like, do you want to see it again? He's like, I've seen it. I was like, but (laughs) again,
0: (laughs) just like the headdress turning into the cityscape. I know it's just, well, I presume that's the palace. That's that's gorgeous with the stars. And obviously that's a reference to Star and just it's absolutely beautiful you must be so proud of it and you can show it off as well it looks good on a shelf
2: yeah I I am it's it was honest it was exactly what I wanted you know you I think a lot of people hear hear horror stories of oh you know their cover was terrible they didn't like it there was nothing you know for them but first my team was incredible we we I talked to my editor about it a lot we went over so many different ideas and then they they worked with Jim and, and this is what they gave me. I, I I as I said like I had no edits. They they were like, you know, do you have any any changes to anything? I was like, no, just just leave it, just print it. It's perfect. Don't change anything. Yeah, because I, I just I, I think it's stunning.
0: Jezebel was born into the world howling. She intends to leave it the same way. When Jezebel learns she can't be a king like her father simply because she's a girl, she vows never to become someone's decorative wife, nameless and lost to history. At 15, she's married off, despite her protests, to Prince Ahab of Israel. There, she does what she must to gain power and remake the dry and distant kingdom in the image of her beloved, prosperous seaside homeland of Tyre, beginning by building temples to the gods she grew up worshipping. As her initiatives usher in a new era of prosperity for Israel, her subjects love her and her name rings throughout the land. Then Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh and her former lover, begins to speak out against her. Bitter, having been abandoned by Jezebel, he lashes out, calling her a slut, harlot, witch. And the people, revering their prophet's message, turn on her. As ancient powers and faiths are pitted against each other, Bloodshed descends on Israel and Jezebel faces the fall of her legacy. Determined despite the odds to make Israel a great nation, she must decide how far she's willing to go to protect her family, her throne, her name. We start the story with Jezebel's birth and she's born with a mark on her palm. There's a bit of a debate between one of the maids and the midwife over whether this is a curse or a blessing from Astarte. Is this true or did you make this up, this exchange?
2: So that exchange I made up. Um, so we don't have any historical evidence of Jezebel having the the mark on her palm um that really was just kind of a a way for I, I feel like Jezebel is a really angry character and I love that. And that was a way for me to show kind of almost the genesis of her anger, like she really does feel that it's that it's a gift from the goddess that that was taken from her. And so that in a way started started everything for her. Um, you know, she couldn't write with that. She brought Sapphira, you know, then she interacted with Elijah. So I thought it was just kind of an, an interesting way. And um, and stars and things like that really were intertwined with the Startes um, mythology and they were part of the signs that would have been used by by her followers. So I also thought it was just kind of a fun little tribute to her as well.
1: Jezebel is the princess of Tia and we learn very early on how the goddess Ashdati was everywhere so can you tell us a little bit about who she is and why she's so important to Tia?
2: Yeah so in in Tyre they would have had many different they, they had many different gods so they were a really polytheistic society they weren't monotheistic like Israel which is obviously a big part of the problem and so they would have worshipped El Melkart Anat who, who is one of my favorite goddesses and Astarte is kind of the the mother goddess if you will so I tend to think of her as like the hero of Greek mythology but for um, Phoenicia at the time so she was the goddess of again of kind of like bounty of giving she would have been she she was the the queen consort of el who was essentially the head god the zeus of of this ancient um belief system and i had jezebel focus on her because again she's a woman and jezebel is very female centric and there, there really were a lot of depictions of Astarte in, in the ancient time. You can still see statues of her. We have one of her. I think it's an ivory that I saw that's just beautifully done with these like lovely rounded hips and rounded busts that I think is, she looks like she's like, I, I think there's a line where it says Astarte was dripping with life. And that's what she looks like in the, in the little, the figurine that you see. Um, and so it, it was important for me to have her be the, the main goddess that that Jezebel worships also because there were hundreds of gods and so i was like I, I can't have hundreds of gods in this book it would just be too confusing so i really wanted to focus on one that essentially would have been the the clashing god against Yahweh in Israel
1: as you said i started as the wife of El who is their main god but Jezebel sees El as Ashtati's consort, rather than Ashtati just being the wife. And there's an exchange with a young Jezebel where she's asking who the model was for all of the artwork of Ashtati that we see. And she's told that women's names weren't written down, which is a thing throughout history. Do you think that the readers now know that she's going to grow into a woman that isn't going to stick to the status quo? I
2: think- probably just because the name Jezebel is known and I think because it's such it's so foundational for her you know that's I think that scene is just a few pages in where she's like you know where where what is her name she's asking her mother um and her mother intentionally throughout the whole book intentionally remains nameless I never name her because we we don't have her name we have Jezebel we have her brother uh Baal Iser we have her father Isobal um but we don't we we don't know her name and we never will. And so it, it was important for me to show that on the page. And then also for, for Jezebel to have that moment kind of mark her to say, like, to, to be thinking about it. Okay. When, when the deeds are written down and, and she's obsessed, you know, with her history, with Tyre, but to think about how that namelessness is all she wants to avoid in her life. She wants to be remembered. And I think, you know, that's one reason in this, that and she is in the end, because we all know the name of Jezebel, even if we know it in that really derogatory um, way. And she's also
1: very aware of the full breasts and hips of Ashtati. I thought that suggested that she was very aware of the impact that female sensuality has from a young age. But correct me if I'm wrong.
2: No, I, I really agree with that. Um, So a lot of the stories, again, that you hear of Jezebel is she was, you know, she was a harlot, she was a whore, she was running around, you know, sleeping with anyone or whatever. Um, but at the time, I think she would have had a definite understanding of sensuality, of sexuality and her mother, you know, in, in the story teaches her about it to how she can use it to please men, how she can use it to gain power because women again had so little power. It was one way they could gain any of that that power back. And Jezebel herself cares about that in terms of consolidating her power that's that's really how she cares about it and the the other the funny thing you'll hear um you'll hear stories often of you know every woman in entire there there were these stories of these um what were they called Pro- priestess prostitutes essentially how every woman in the country had to be a priestess and they prostituted themselves out for for the the goddess but that's like it, it's it's a mistranslation that's really inaccurate that happened I think starting in the 1870s because of course Jezebel's in-laws demanded proof of her virginity and whatever we call that even though obviously it's not real um and every woman who was married off would also have been had to show that proof so this this idea that like every woman in Tyre and Phoenicia in these these lands that we tend to think of having these sacred prostitutes, it, it's just, it's deeply inaccurate. Because again, it's that like you had to be a virgin in order to show that your husband's, you know, child was his child and, and all of this stuff kind of intertwined together.
0: Jezebel goes to a priestess for a vision. She wants a vision of her future. And she tells the priestess that she wants help from a The priestess tells her that they'll need to sacrifice a dove so presumably doves are important to Ashtarte at this point. Would different gods require different sacrifices?
2: Um, I don't know that I've looked into that particularly. As far as I know, yes, it, it depends on on really what what they required. So you know, in the biblical tales, you'll you'll see Yahweh saying he wants you know a bull sacrificed for this sin or a goat sacrificed for this. Sin. And and the other gods were similar. In, in this case, the dove was kind of like a, I believe, a sacred animal for Starty. So it was, you know, it was something precious. And it was, again, that, that idea of sacrifice, giving up something important to get this vision or what have you.
0: Jezebel's dad tells her there's no better way to truly understand a land than walking through its market if it was full of luxuries like silk spices and soft-faced women buying gold jewelry then the people were prosperous they were happy but if it's full only of necessities like flour oil fish that sat too long in the sun then the king needed to take note so do you think this is true you can judge a place by its market clearly this is something because she takes it with her you know when she marries it becomes something she mentions about how the marketplace is doing later on in the book and she obviously I don't want to go into too much before spoilers but one of her plans is to to take a marketplace to where she goes
2: yeah I definitely I think so now that's that's a made-up line by me I love markets and I wanted to show them um but I definitely think especially in that time period the market and the marketplace, were were really important they were kind of touchstones of every town every city um and so you know th- this idea of having a place with luxuries cuz Tyre really was it was a luxurious place you know the people in it were wealthy you know they they had jewelry they had silks and spices um they had the the purple sea snails which, which brought them a great deal of wealth and they were you know, great sailors. So at the, uh, they had all these trade routes. So she grew up in this really luxurious place where where it was selling luxury. And then she goes to Israel, and they they've been you know at war for so many years. And what she's seen there is is much more poverty. It's essentials. It's nothing extra. Um. So I kind of wanted to show how that how that changed over time, how that morphed, and how she she does see that as the touchstone because her father's advice, her father's words are really important to her, even even though he can be a bit terrible at, you know, times. So so I think it's it's also just an important and kind of a fun way to show what's going on in the area, what what they were selling, what the spices would have been, what it, what it felt like.
1: Well speaking of her dad, he wants to marry her to the Prince of Israel. She doesn't want to, and clearly she doesn't think much of it as a place. What benefit would there have been for her dad? And Tyre for marrying her to the prince of somewhere that's less impressive and often at war, as you said.
2: Yeah. So the the thing about <laughs> the thing that I find funny about Jezebel is she's she's really not the most reliable narrator. So she looks at Israel a certain way, even if it it, it she definitely would have considered it less than than Phoenicia than Tyre, because tyre was one of the greatest civilizations in the world at the time so there there would have been i'm sure many different alliances looked at and benefits to it but israel really was gaining power they had a really a really solid army um and so from what i remember they they wanted the soldiers and they wanted the trade routes because there were a lot of really great trade routes essentially that you got with that connection Plus, there, there had always been some kind of connection with Tyre and Israel. Um, there were the the palace, I believe, in Samaria in Israel was was crafted with Tyrrhenian stone and stonemasons. Um, and again, it, it also would have been very advantageous for Israel, of course, because Tyre was was very wealthy and well off. There's that point where she makes a comment about
1: being a great honor in the marriage and Ahab clocks. <laughs> that she's implying it's honor for them, not so much for her.
2: Yeah, that was just a kind of fun, cheeky little, Jezebel's, she's not, (laughs) she's definitely arrogant. She definitely thinks it is an honor for them. You know, at this time, it was so, the people were very, um, kind of focused on their country. So where they were from was, was everything. So for her, you know, coming from this place of learning and beauty, like T- Tyre, Phoenicia was was the place that created really the alphabet as we know it. Um, and so that that meant that that meant everything to her. It was it was again where she wanted to be forever. So she does think that it is that they are really coming up, and she's really going down.
1: I sort of likes the fact as well that she's not overly impressed by Ahab when she sees him. And the fact that she recognizes him as being quite short, I thought was quite a funny Mm -hmm. observation.
2: Yeah, I Jezebel, um, from from what I read in uh, Leslie Hazleton's book would have been quite tall, I think, at, at least over five, eight. And. I thought it was just kind of a funny image to have her kind of towering over this man who's who's very muscular and powerful but he he wasn't particularly tall. Um and I just I liked that just just putting it in. I thought it was just kind of a funny way to show also some of Belle's just snobbery. She's just like he is short. <laughs>
0: It does get mentioned that she's tall. She's obviously taller than an average woman or at least the women in Israel. So it does get mentioned. So the fact that it gets mentioned about her probably does mean she will notice it about someone else.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: This is the point of the episode where if you haven't read the book, you should stop listening and come back when you finished as we're about to go into spoilers, major plot points, and the ending.
1: Jezebel is clearly very astute from the point that she goes to Israel. And there's a point in her in a monologue where we hear her say, I was unsurprised that Omri was such a king, one who needed approval from others for the things he did and said. It was why his nation floundered while Tyre flourished. My father had advisors, of course, but he did not look to them for approval. His decisions were his alone, and he stood or fell from them on his own. Still, I thought it's good to know where power in Israel really lies. It was the advisors I would have to convince to make my plans a reality. So do you think this tells us what, queen she, what kind of queen she's going to be when it gets to the point that she will be queen? Because eventually Omri will die and her and Ahab will, will rule Israel.
2: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think it does. Jezebel is strategizing pretty much from from the moment she wakes up to when she falls asleep. She is always thinking about power and how to consolidate it, how essentially to get the power she wants to create the name she wants, because that's her end goal, having her name be remembered, you know, turning Israel into this, into this place that is is as, as good is better than than Tyre. Because, you know, she has an exchange with her father where she says, you know, yes, I'll go to Israel, but eventually people will say my name. And so I think it's important just to think about how even when she's sitting at this wedding feast, she's she's not just sitting, she's not drinking wine. She is carefully calculating where the power is, who she's going to have to convince of her plans, who she's going to have to kiss up to essentially, and I like I like seeing a calculating woman. you know, so often in stories we hear, oh, this woman was cold and calculating. like like it's negative instead of being like, She's interesting, she's using you know strategic planning because if a man doesn't, we're like wow, he's strategic and if a woman doesn't, we're like, she's calculating what like what other motives does she have? Um, so I wanted to just show that very clearly on the page that like she does have motives and it's to to have her name be remembered. it's to you know keep her family safe. It, it's it's multifaceted but but she's not just sitting back and letting things happen.
1: It's like that Taylor Swift song, The Man, where she says, all of these things that I do, if I was a man, you wouldn't be saying negative things.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And that's I, I think you see that time and time again, especially, as I said earlier, in in historical stories, you we, we praise men for for the things they do, even if they're horrifying now. And then we, you know, we, we see women do it and we think of them really negatively.
1: Let's talk about sex, because I'm a woman who likes to gossip about sex. <laughs> When we look back in history, we're giving an, given an image of, like to use the sort of rabbit quotes, a good woman. And these are the kind of women that get married and they have families and they're pretty unknowledgeable about sex. It feels like it's something that happens to them. And there's a point in Jezebel's inner monologue where she says, woman entire had more knowledge of sex before marriage. I wondered sometimes if all that came might have been avoided if I had trembled. It's what if what they wanted for me was to be like their women, to be afraid in the dark. And it kind of gives me that image of Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones, where she's just totally unprepared for having sex with her husband for the first time. And you've got Jezebel, who's just so much more aware of the power that she can have sexually because of where she's come from and that education that she would have been given by her mom. Do you think that she's kind of right, though?
2: I think, yeah, I I think absolutely she is. You know, I think you see that women for for so much of history in so many situations have been taught nothing about sex, or they've been taught to like lie back and think of England. You know, like that's that's what what a good woman is supposed to do, and certainly she's not supposed to take any kind of pleasure in it for so long. And so it, it was important for me also to have you know, Jezebel and her mother don't, don't really get on too well. She's not on the page much, but it was important for me to have her mother say, like, this is what I can show you. And this is how you can, you can learn these things. And, you know, there would have been different, different, uh, sexual mores and like, yes, do this. And yes, don't do that at at this time. And again, they would have been asked for proof of Jezebel's, uh, virginity. Um, but, but but it was important for me that Jezebel didn't go into it and, and wasn't wasn't like this image of this like shy, you know, virgin for the first time that that she understood what was happening and that she was also using it you know the the king was using it they they needed an heir but she also needed an heir very much and and she understood that this was how to get it and again that you know using whatever you know, the, the things her mother taught her could also give her more power over, over Ahab and over, you know, the country.
0: I did enjoy when she thought to herself, well, if I wanted you to want me, you would.
2: I also, I really enjoyed that. That's again, just a little bit of Bell's like arrogance. Like, like, look, I, I, I know what I'm doing and I am going to, you know, make this uncomfortable for you if if I want to um I just I I thought that was really fun
1: (laughs) boys get taught things by their dad about how to be a king and how to rule a country and do like manly things so it's kind of nice that the her mom could actually impart some valuable information and it's something that Jezebel could use tactically
2: yeah, yeah. And that's really, you know, again, we, when we hear these stories of Jezebel, often they're mixed up with some kind of, with sexuality in some way. You, you think of her as, you know, a whore or a slut or, or a rut have you. And, and I wanted to kind of play with that a little bit too, to not have her, you know, have no knowledge of it to really to have her understand it at the time for what it was because sex in this time certainly with Ahab at least initially it wasn't loving it was it was for reproduction it it was for a son maybe you know it was pleasurable for him but probably wouldn't have been for her and so I wanted her to to have that knowledge and to twist it a little bit essentially
0: I do sometimes wonder how pleasurable it is for the man in this situation because obviously he has to get to a certain point but so much is expected of you and it's like you get married right now make a baby come on yeah
2: make a baby make a baby make a baby we're all waiting I think it would have been horrible frankly for for everyone involved particularly if you look at um I think it was the the French court one of the Louis I can't remember um who, who married Marie Antoinette and they literally had people around the bed as they were like consummating their marriage like watching and it just sounds ho- just absolutely horrifying and of course no baby came out of that Cause like how could it and it it's been such a like a weird thing especially for royalty because that's that that's all you want okay you have to have an heir so that your bloodline or whatever can continue
0: Another thing that I enjoyed was some of the conversations about religion between Jezebel and Elijah. Elijah was Ahab's scribe and cousin. She tells him that Tyre was made from a star and he dismisses, dismisses this. He he dismisses that cities don't come from stars. And she retorts, well, shepherds don't kill giants. And I did like that between them. You know, he says that Yahweh told him that David killed Goliath and she retorts, well, Ashtarte told us about Tyre and it was just it it was something I enjoyed because they're so they both believe so wholeheartedly in their god or gods that they they can't see the other one but they're so similar
2: yeah I think it's really interesting when you look at you know religious beliefs um throughout throughout the years most people you know for for a long time have had some kind of religious belief in in a god or something like that and in most religions it's like, this is the way, this is like the only way. And and I think it's interesting you hear in many, you know, myths and stories and ancient texts, like, okay, th- this is what happened. And I think often you grew up believing that. And then someone else says, well, this is what my God or, or my history says happened. You're like, Wait, how can can these both be true? You know, what what is this? And I, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's a, a way to look at it just just differently, to understand that like everyone has a perspective different from our own. And everyone has a different point where they might start questioning. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, Elijah, throughout this, for for a lot questions things. And um, some of the questions have been things I questioned myself, you know, growing up reading these biblical passages and texts. And I think anyone would you know no matter what you're reading very often you're like well how did that work how how could it have been and i think it's i just think it's interesting to to look at it you know in a different way to say you know why is a giant killing or a shepherd killing a giant different than a city being built created from a star at school
0: i remember a conversation between two of my friends and one was saying that she questioned the bible with the noah and the ark story because she didn't believe that a god would flood the flood the earth and that these animals will all survive on a ship essentially and the other friend went wait so that's what makes you disbelieve that's what makes you question a god not the fact that there's famine and disease and poverty and terrible terrible things but an implausible story where two of every single species of animal could co cohabit and coexist on this ship on this ark? that's the bit that you that that's the bit that you don't believe. And that's kind of
2: what this scene reminded
0: me of between the yeah. two of them.
2: Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's I think often in situations like these, you don't question things until you do. There there's something that that you're like, wait, what? And, and you know, I think faith is very important. You know, for many people, it is for me. But, but I think questioning, questioning things is not, and never should be wrong. Like I think it's important to be like, well, is this figurative? Is it metaphorical language? Is this a poem? Is this something we're supposed to take, you know, hundred percent for truth, or, or in whatever way? Um, And I think I just think it's interesting to to interrogate these stories and to look at them from from a different perspective than the way we've been taught you know I think that's we've done that with myths and legends and stories for for thousands of years and I I think I think it's interesting that's why that's that's why I think these stories have endured you know that's why we love Greek myth retellings no matter how many there are like I will read them I will buy them because because they're they're stories that we know that are retold or looked at from a way we haven't considered it before.
1: A moment I thought was really, really sweet was the wedding present from Ahab to Jezebel. But why do you think Ahab would have had a temple built for her to Ashtati as a wedding present when he told her previously that Tyre is a wicked place because they worship false gods?
2: So this is, you know, and this is a big the big heart of the, the biblical story. This story you hear is... Jezebel comes she turns Ahab you know through her magical sexual arts or whatever into into someone who 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 worships the baals the, the gods and in this i i did think it was really sweet and i think it also made sense because if you come from this this polytheistic society to a monotheistic society you know multiple gods versus one god i i think Ahab was very astute so he understood that Jezebel's not just going to be like okay by by other gods that I grew up worshiping, and yes, only to Yahweh. So I think it's it's a smart move. And, and when he does it, he doesn't see it as anything other than giving his new wife a place to worship. He doesn't see it as something that Jezebel will then use to, you know, to change the, the fabric of Israel as she wants to do. It's
1: something that Omri did as well, wasn't it? Well, he kind of respected that places that he conquered had their own gods and he kind of just let them be with that
2: yeah and that's that was the really that was the big problem in the biblical story because in these stories Yahweh asks them you know first you're not you're not supposed to intermarry with with anyone who who's polytheistic who's of a different faith and you were also not supposed to you were supposed to root that out you know temples and other worship and Omri that that's why the this essentially era of peace started was because because Omri let let people live and didn't didn't you know destroy their temples and and their gods as well.
0: There's a scene in which Jezebel goes to Ahab and he says he's weary but we later find out he he was actually grieving and he was getting drunk because he was grieving. But Jezebel then goes in his place to speak on the on the council with the council. Do you think if Ahab hadn't dodged the council meeting because he was in air quotes too tired, too weary. It would have been easy for her to have sought the king's ear for improvements in other
2: ways. I think she would have made it happen regardless. Yeah, I, I don't that that really was just kind of an opportunity she took initially. She was going to try to work through Ahab, but then when he's he's just kind of like, I'm tired, I'm not, I'm not doing this. She really she took advantage of that and she used, you know, her her feminine wiles. She smiled sweetly at the king. She was like, but but wouldn't this be nice? Just like a little gentle, like it wouldn't cause any harm. And and again, Jezebel doesn't think it will cause harm to, to have her temples and her gods in the land. She's not, you know, she, she doesn't have the same restrictions that, that the Israelites were called to. She, she's like, I, she respected all gods. She wouldn't have, she respected, initially she would have respected Yahweh as much as she would have respected any other god and the thing is she expected the same the same essentially which in a monotheistic society she she didn't get
0: i have a question about that further on but apart from building temples you know she didn't necessarily do that for the benefit of israel she does help with building of granaries you know she builds schools there's Improvement in trade with Tyre, this peace with the group of outlaws who were causing problems. The country does seem better on the whole.
2: Yeah. So so again, as I said, when Jezebel was first married, it was a popular marriage. Um, so Psalm 45, I believe it is, is is still sung um in many places. It's still quoted, and it was actually, as far as we know, her wedding song. So, like the the song you hear Elijah writing, you read about was it's still it's still used, even though we don't say it's, you know, about Jezebel anymore. And it says something about, you know, how prosperous and wonderful and beautiful Jezebel is. Um, And so she she does change the country for good as she sees it. You know, she builds those granaries. And now certainly some of that is my own imagination, because I wanted Jezebel to be powerful, to show what what she created before you have the drought come and a lot of, you know, the start of her downfall. But Israel was growing more prosperous. And they, you know, they were, Ahab, though he was a soldier, was much more inclined for peace than he was for war, which I also think is kind of extraordinary at that time.
1: We kind of expect that men in history have mistresses or other women. And one of Ahab's lovers becomes pregnant and she is summoned on like, ahab to be at the birth of his illegitimate child why
2: would he want her there was that a thing i so for me that was really more of ahab kind of a power play so when when jezebel first comes ahab doesn't want her there he's grieving his who he considers you know his first real love the woman he, he wasn't allowed to marry who died and I see it as Ahab being like, you, you know, may think you're doing this and that and being powerful, but like, I'm still in charge. And if I say you, you're you going to attend this birth, you're going to. And there also would have been, you know, he, he would have had concubines and other wives, um, even if Jezebel was, you know, the first wife, the queen. And I don't know, I, I don't know if I researched this exactly, but I think it would have been fairly common for, for many of the women to gather when, when there was a birth going on. Um, But in this case, essentially, Ahab is rubbing Jezebel's nose in it a little bit and was like, I still have the power here. And again, Jezebel goes because she has to because because she's told to because, you know, Ahab is grieving and he's angry and he's like, I I also think there's also some of that like he's like, look, I have a child with this random woman and you still haven't given me one yet, which is kind of another aspect to it
1: kind of loved that she named the child Delilah as a way to be petty and throw shade, because it means something quite nice but there's yeah. also the association that they would have had with Delilah being the one who cut Solomon's hair yeah
2: yeah yeah they they would have yeah uh, that was that was really just again Belle being petty because she really can be petty which I kind of love but it was also it you know again it was kind of going back to the the power of names and what they mean to her and that's why she she you know insists that Elijah eventually write her name down because she's like you know this girl won't matter but at least at least in one place her name will be written down
1: I like the fact that she could get away with it because maybe she doesn't know that story but I feel like the baby mama knew
2: yeah oh I I think everyone knew but but you couldn't you know there was enough disbelief that you couldn't that Jezebel would have been like I just thought it was a pretty name (laughs) like you know So, (laughs) one
1: thing that I thought was quite progressive about Elijah, at least in some of the book, is that he's very interested in some of the religious stories that Jezebel tells him. But he doesn't like stories of the goddess Anat. And she says to him, Didn't your own David, your own King David, bring the foreskins of 200 Philistines as a bride price? Why shouldn't Anat do worse to her enemies? And he replies, at least David was a man. For a woman, even a goddess, to see so much blood. And she says, women do not fear blood. But her inner monologue tells us that this was a lie. But surely it's a lie because she wants to get pregnant. And seeing blood means that she's not pregnant. So apart from her own fear of not being pregnant, I feel like she has a real point. Yeah,
2: that, you know, it was kind of... I I think often you'll see women, especially, you know, in, in historical eras being treated as if they're very delicate and like, you know, kind of that, that idea of like a Victorian woman, she sees a sight of blood and she'll faint, but like women get periods every month and bleed every single month. So, so I, I don't, I think the idea of like women being, being afraid of it is not It it, is just inaccurate now sure some some people everyone sometimes don't like the sight of blood they don't like to bleed, but this this idea that you know that, that it was only the men who could who could be these great warriors who could who could kill and you know have blood running down their hands and, and the women would faint in it. it is just it's it's laughable to Jezebel. Um, because again, she grew up with these stories of a gnat who was this very fearsome warrior and, you know, had a, a belt of genitals that she wore uh, uh into battle. And she's she she's she a very cool goddess. If you have the chance to look up some stories of her, she's she's very interesting.
1: I would love to see that belt. Like I
2: I, I can't quite picture how it would look,
1: but I'm curious. Yeah, I
2: I also can't quite picture it but but I also would like to see it
0: (laughs) it gets smaller as it gets colder as well (laughs) was Jezebel upset with Sephira reading the scrolls about Israel because it seemed like a betrayal or her forgetting about Tyre you know she's establishing a new life in Israel and Jezebel isn't really settling in the same way you know, she's not settling in, in the way that she would like, but Safira is very much of the opinion of, well, we're here now, this is our life. You know, I thought it was a very simple, sensible thing to, to do. You've, you've moved to this new place, you you don't know much about it, so read the scrolls for the history. You know, even if you don't like the place, knowledge is power, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think Safira is very practical. She- she's, Again, as you say, she's like, "We're here. We we need to know what's happening." And I think Belle normally would agree with that, but because she's still grieving for Tyre, which which in many ways is her true love, like what she wants to do is go home. But what she wants to do is go home and brule it. So I think that she she sees it as a betrayal of of this place that they both loved, even though she spent so much of her own time as a child reading about Tyre's history. But for a very long time, she still. She's bitter toward Israel and 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 she she hates it and she hates being there and she only sees the negatives of it which which I think definitely changes as time goes on but initially she just she didn't even want to hear anything good about it essentially.
1: Since we're in spoilers we can talk about this. So Elijah and Jezebel have a relationship and he asks her to leave with him, uh, which she won't and he disappears. But just prior to him disappearing, he starts to have dreams about Yahweh talking to him. When he eventually comes back, the influence of Jezebel's gods has have grown. And we know that he's been sowing seeds against it from wherever he's been. And when he comes back, he says, there will be no rain. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in this land except at my word. And this made me think of when Tanith tells Jezebel that Yahweh is a very jealous god. But do you think at first to Jezebel, this thing that Elijah says about the rain wouldn't have seemed like a big deal till maybe three years later and there's still no rain?
2: Yeah, so I think Jezebel and Elijah look at their gods very differently. So in the you know, it, what you just read out was like, it's a literal biblical passage that I just essentially wrote there. So Elijah had a much more, what I would consider a much more personable relationship with Yahweh. It was a direct, you know, he does this action. Um, the Israelites do this action and something comes of it. Jezebel, I think would have seen her gods in a much more, not that their relationship was worse, but, but it would have been different. She saw the gods as, as kind of, if they did things or they didn't do things. And it was on whims. It wasn't directed at anyone specifically. Now, certainly you could make a God angry and they would punish you, but it wasn't exactly in that same one-to-one manner. And and Jezebel also doesn't think that for her, Yahweh doesn't have any more power than, than Astarte or than um, El would have had. And so she She, she really, she laughs it off. She doesn't, she doesn't think it would happen. And also I think part of it is she, she still doesn't quite believe that like, this is the Elijah, the person she loved. Like, she's like, why, why would you do this? Like, why would you send a drought? It it does, it doesn't make sense to her for a long time. And I think she's also, she's just like, I like, I will cause it to rain just by the power of, you know, my mind and, and it doesn't. And then at the end, obviously she's like uh, (laughs) what's happening. Was there actually a drought around that time? I don't remember. I I can't quite remember um, that. I I think so from from the book, but I I can't say specifically. I did I did stick to kind of the the biblical timeline fairly strictly in terms of big events that happened because I still wanted it to feel familiar in whatever way, and I also like this this idea of like a big grand kind of miracle or you know standoff essentially. After three years of rain
1: we come to the sacrifice off. Elijah summons them to Mount Carmel and he tells Jezebel that her priestesses should make a sacrifice to their gods and then call on them to light the sacrifice. So the priestesses they dance and they end up cutting themselves but still the sacrifice doesn't set on fire elijah then drenches the sacrifice with water and he calls on yahweh who does light the sacrifice on fire and it it's such a big moment in in the story but do you think that elijah knew what would have happened afterwards where there's that kind of mob mentality with the mass slaughter of the priestesses including Minta, who has been like adopted almost by Jezebel.
2: I don't think Elijah went into it knowing that would happen. I definitely think at various points I think I think you say, you know, he's he's in the grip of his god. And and I think it's more like that. It's almost like a like this this bloodlust, like a battle fury kind of comes over him because again, for him he does see these priests as as an abomination, you know, against Yahweh, against the place you know, against Israel. And so I don't think he goes up with with the expectation of killing these priests, at least not in my story, but definitely it it does happen. And that's why I think it's kind of interesting that then he kind of looks down and says, you know, what have I done? And I think people throughout history have done that, listening to their gods or whatever beliefs they have and then saying like, but what actually, what what did I do? and, And how does this actually affect the people around me?
0: Elijah goes to Ahab and Jezebel and Ahab dons ashes and sack clothes and ends up fasting, which is something that we see in the Bible. To quote the book, Elijah says, so says Yahweh, because Ahab humbled himself, I will not bring this promised disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Do you think Ahab is a bit too blase about this? Because Jezebel's obviously upset about what this means and she says to him you know how how can your god punish a child for the sins of the father but ahab's very much like
2: eh. i think for ahab it wouldn't i think he would have been used to that kind of to, to that kind of terminology to that kind of action from yahweh because you see it often in earlier stories of king david um, of Solomon, you know, they they commit some sin, and then they repent, and, and they have, you know, whatever the punishment was removed or changed. And I also think Ahab literally was thinking of, he's like, this isn't going to happen to me. And I also don't think he thinks it's going to happen to his children or his grandchildren. He sees it as, okay, maybe 200 years in the future, we'll lose the throne. But at this point, Ahab is tired and what he wants to work in his garden with his children. So he doesn't I think he doesn't care as much anymore um, that that it will happen in the future, but Belle still is like, you know, <laughs> I, I want to have this kingdom be under my control and my family's control, essentially, for all time. That would be her goal. So I think Ahab is thinking of, in the now, this great disaster won't happen, and Belle is thinking, but in the future, it will. And yeah, and that still really bothers her.
0: I took it as Ahab wanted to be a pacifist and you know conflict resolution he doesn't have to deal with the conflict so because it's not happening now he doesn't need to worry about it
2: yeah i think that definitely is true too you see you see Ahab in in the biblical story even saying when when the city gets attacked and then the Ben-hadad comes and, and asks for forgiveness you see Ahab saying something like, you know, better is the man who who takes off armor than who puts it on. Um, and I think that's I think it's kind of fascinating because Ahab was known as a warrior, but then he's saying essentially, like, let's not fight in a time where fighting and war was such a, a huge part of every society. Um, so I think Ahab actually has quite a quite a lovely and a beautiful perspective. Jezebel just doesn't like it. <laughs> so
0: their son, their youngest son, Joram, has a childhood friend. Jebu, Jehu? Jehu. Jehu. It's a childhood friend called Jehu who gives her kind of weird vibes. Do you think that she ever could have predicted what was going to happen?
2: I don't think she could have because Jezebel is always very sure of herself. Really until the end, Jezebel thinks she can keep and consolidate power in, in whatever way that happens, you know? she she really thinks she and then her sons will maintain control and it's not until really the very last moments that that she realizes that things are are slipping away and plus you know jezebel has this feeling that jehu sh- she doesn't like him but again Bella's is not the most reliable narrator and maybe he maybe he was just a normal child doing normal child things he creeps me out a little bit but you know I I think it would have been different for for maybe other people who who were around her um but yeah I don't think Jezebel would ever have foreseen it because she always believed so firmly in herself essentially
0: there's a bit of an odd exchange with Joram and Jehu when they're adults and Jehu tells her that Beryl has replaced elijah as yahweh's prophet and he deserves her respect and that he's on the verge of hitting her you know he's on the verge of hitting her over her dismissing him as nothing so she's like no he's not he's not a prophet elijah wasn't a prophet beryl's not a prophet and jehu's very much like no no he is and he gets quite very um what's the word very defensive and, and Joram has to kind of talk him down.
2: Yeah, it's possible at that point, Jezebel should have paid. I mean, I think she should have paid more attention to Jehu um, and what's going on. But I think there's also I think Jezebel was really blinded by love for Joram. You know, he was really her favorite child. She loved him like she didn't love her other children in the same way. Um, and so while while there is that exchange, I also wanted I think I wanted you to feel the heaviness of this at this point Jezebel has been fighting this fight you know for 30 years essentially and I think she's also a little bit tired of it of of everything that's happened and again you know Ahab dies and then her oldest son dies and then Jehu or I'm sorry Joram becomes king and she still doesn't have the power and the control and yeah, I, I, I think that's that's very hard for her. And also she doesn't really think it's worth it to fight to fight Jehu. I think she's just like, it's not, it's not worth my time, essentially, at this point.
0: But do you think that when Joram diffuses the situation, she's thinking it's more Jehu trying to push boundaries rather than this whole other thing
2: that's going on? Yeah, I think so, definitely. I don't think Jezebel sees any any uprising, any whispers of it, because if she had, she would have put it down. Um, But I don't, I I think she sees it still really as um, her family is in control. And maybe she sees it more as like, she, you know, she kind of had this battle with Enoch, who was one of Omri's and then one of Ahab's advisors. And they kind of, you know, battled on and off, they fight about various things, but he never tried to take the throne. And I think she sees Jehu in the same way, kind of in a like, a bratty advisor someone I don't like someone I'll fight against but not someone who's actually a threat
1: almost at the end of the book she like I think a couple of pages from the end she gets herself ready to meet Jehu and sort of her again her in a monologue I dressed and adorned myself I braided my long hair and twisted it through with jewels that would catch the late afternoon lights I put on my best purple robes wound a gold necklace around my throat and put bangles on my wrists and ankles. I filled my fingers with rings and then began on my face. I carefully whitened it, erasing the years so that I was as fresh-faced as the girl I had been 30 years before. I outlined my, my eyes in coal and then slowly, carefully, I painted my lips deep red, lining them as if with blood one last time. From what you know about her, why do you think that she chose to do this? Because I felt like she's almost suiting herself up for battle. Like this is her armor.
2: That's really, I think, exactly how she feels about it. You know, you often when you're when you're taught the biblical story, you you hear you have this last scene with Jezebel and Jehu and, and we're taught it's Jezebel's vanity that makes her, you know, dress up and put on these robes and, and put on, you know, makeup and jewelry but i see it as as jezebel as you said taking her last chance to be queen to be that absolute ruler to show you know the golden hair the wealth the jewels the purple robe um and, and as you said i think it it is a way of her arming herself against you know this man who's who's killed her family and who she knows she's not going to to escape from so i absolutely see it not as vanity but as a way of of protecting herself one last time, I think that's why women often wear makeup. It's, it's to, you know, erase flaws. It can make you feel like you're different, like you're stronger or braver maybe than you think you are.
0: Before we get into goodbyes, my final question is: Is Jezebel ambitious or deluded? <laughs> well, she grows up wanting to be king, right? Then she can't have that. When she can't have that, she then wants her name to be remembered. Then she moved to Israel with plans to build temples and schools and markets, which she does, but she doesn't really take in any regard for the people who live there and what they may actually want. You know, she doesn't seem to ask anyone's real opinions, not even the council. You know, she doesn't ask them, do you want my temples? She just engineers that they're built. And, you know, at the point where she's doing this, Astarte isn't outwardly worshipped in the city. So where... I don't know, is she deluded or is she ambitious? Because part of it is like, this is really cool. She's she's thinking ahead. She's She wants a prosperous country. But in other aspects, it's like, actually, if other people did that, if other people went into a, a city, a town, a country, and just did what they wanted, other people wouldn't be happy. But when she hears grumbling, she's surprised.
2: I think that's probably up for each reader to decide as they're reading it. Because I, I think once a book is out in the world, it's not like... My book is the version I read when I read it, but I, I think books are, are what readers make of them. I think she's, I think she's both. I think she's so ambitious, and she believes in herself so much that it it does lead to, to probably some delusions of grandeur. Um, and I think I think she does the same things that kings at that time did. They went into places. And they put their mark on them in, in however way, and they didn't care what, you know, what the townspeople thought. They didn't care what the peasants or the servants or the slaves thought. They cared about having um, the power, the wealth, the adulation. And I think Bell is the same way. So when we look at it, I think from a, a modern perspective, certainly we would be like, you can't just go in and be like, buy religion, buy, buy all of these things and, and, and do what you want. But Belle really, and and Belle really did see it as a way of making Israel better. In the end, she really, I think, for me, did care about Israel, did care about the people there. She wanted it to be like the place she grew up, to be like Tyre, and part of that was for their own well-being, and part of it was because she wants her name to be remembered, because she wants to be remembered as someone who did great things forever, and that is, I think, I, I think it's all mixed up in that, in, in that, you know, in ambition and delusion, sometimes I think you have to be a little deluded to be super, super ambitious. Because I think it's hard to, you know, for to be 10 years old and be like, I'm going to be president without having some kind of deluded sense of, of your own worth and, you know, your, your own abilities. But yeah, I think in the end, that's probably more up for readers themselves to decide. I think a lot of what she did was really positive, but.
1: What gets me is the temples because she could have just had her own temple built in like the palace complex because you are going into somewhere that's monotheistic. So you can't expect it's going to just translate over.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I totally agree. And Jezebel, again, I think they think of, of God so differently. Jezebel, she does certainly at least initially respect all other gods. But she doesn't see, and again, this is probably part of the delusion. She doesn't see polytheism being different than monotheism. She's like, this is this is my way of life. You know, it's it's better if she thinks of it, I think, of more as like, it's better if one God doesn't have this strict grip over this land. You know, they do everything based on what this God says or doesn't say. So it's better If you have multiple gods, if you're looking at, you know, from all different perspectives, it's better if you don't have prohibitions about who the women can marry and where you can trade from and who you should or shouldn't kill and who you should or shouldn't fight with. So I think that's also the basis of it. You know, it's also that grasping at power as much as it is her wanting the gods of her childhood with her.
0: It makes more sense that she would have been more accepting of Yahweh because she's already polytheistic. She's already thinking that there are many gods there are multiple gods so it's not a massive stretch for her to take in another one but the other way round is a lot harder because you're saying that this one this one being isn't isn't the be all powerful one you're now adding more into it and it's harder for people to to comprehend that
2: absolutely and I think it makes I think it makes total sense that they would have fought against that and be like if you're taught this is the only way and then she comes in and she says well there are actually hundreds of ways i think that's that's frightening and alarming and again she does she i would say bell thinks that monotheism she she thinks it's backwards she considers it like you know a a, a relic of ancient times she she thinks because you know so many probably majority of the religions around her would have been polytheistic and wouldn't have had just one god to worship one god to worship it would really have been absurd to her i think she is ambitious but she she was a victim of her own time and
0: her own station because being a princess royal she would have been told that she could have anything but actually she can't have everything she can't have anything that she wants and had she been born centuries or a millennia later the things that she was doing would have been seen in a different way They would have been viewed in a different way but doing what she wanted to do at the time that she wanted to do it it's like well your name is not going to be remembered in the way that you want it to be
2: yeah yeah I completely agree
0: thank you so much for coming to chat to us we really enjoyed your book brilliant
2: oh thank you so much it was so lovely to speak with both of you
0: if you were Jezebel would you pick Ahab
2: or Elijah oh gosh this is so difficult and I have thought about this before um I think Elijah is objectively hotter so that's one for him I guess it depends the, the Elijah before he started having the visions probably would have been more my type but in the end I think ahab is the when they fall in love i think ahab is the better husband and the better father and would have been steadier i think they actually work better as a couple
0: maybe because they didn't have that passion there that overshadowed everything so it was more of a partnership
2: i completely agree i think that's true i think they would have been an absolute power couple. Now you can see Ahab, he would have been, you know, the the stay at home dad with his kids taking care of them. Jezebel would have been out, you know, conquering boardrooms or saving a planet or who knows, maybe a billionaire CEO who's terrible. You don't know. (laughs) But I think, yeah, I I do think their partnership in the end was better because Elijah and Jezebel, I think in the end, would probably have exhausted each other. And I don't, I don't think they probably ever really worked because Elijah really didn't understand her, I think, fully in the end.
1: That's it for me when he wants her to run away. She's kind of surprised because like, you know what it is that I want. So you're asking me to abandon all of
2: that. Yeah, it was a really a moving scene and kind of hard to write because they do love each other, but there's. There's more to it, and and you know when Bell realizes that he doesn't understand that she that she would never leave. There's no world in which Jezebel would go and would be a fishwife on you know in in a little in a little village somewhere. She she never would have done that. Safira would have known that. Ahab would know it, but Elijah I think was so blinded by by that love for her and by the future that he envisioned that he didn't that he didn't fully fully understand her and understand her ambition your book is coming out in a
0: couple of weeks at the point where we're talking to you, but we also understand how publishing works. So have you got anything else that you're working on that you're allowed to discuss with us?
2: I do. Yes. Um. So I'll have another book coming out in, I think, fall of 2024. Um. So it's it's also historical fiction, but it's ancient historical fiction even but it's set in um Ireland around the time of the Bronze Age and it has to do with the um Irish pantheon of gods which is much less well known specifically these these figures that are kind of called the Tuatha de Danon, and there's there's a lot of mythology around them but they haven't been I think as explored as they could be um so the book focuses on one of these gods um called Kaliak who essentially is um, going to be spend some time in the mortal world and is not going to like it for for a lot of it. Um, But it's, it's, it's been a real joy to write. It's, it's so different from Jezebel, but also I think similar in a lot of ways. And then it really focuses on, you know, a strong woman who is almost Jezebel's opposite. Like they're so opposite. They're almost similar and they almost come around again. I think it's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. How did you pronounce that Irish word again? Because. Okay, so I pronounce it Kaliak. I'm... No, the
1: the other one, the one before.
2: Oh, it's de Danan. So yeah. it's seldom, I think it's T-U-A-T-H-A and then it's D-E and then it's D-A-N-N-A, I believe. It essentially means the people of Danu, who was who kind of this overarching mother goddess. Um, there's very, very little known about her who would have been similar to Ahira or Starte um you you'll see you see a lot of stories of them sometimes the tuatha de danann are seen more as superhuman superheroes you'll you'll see them in some like fantasy romances some fun things like that but they were also would have been part of of very ancient um celtic mythology and irish mythology before christianity kind of colonized ireland so this is pre-christianity um, more in the times of when there were druids who were not just sacrificing people, by the way. They were very cool and learned people. Um, and kind of goes into that whole, that whole timeline and, and what it would have been like, even when Ireland was um in in this time anyway, Ireland is still very wooded because it, it was just before people started cutting down the trees and, and stuff. And now you know Ireland as we know it now, which has very few trees. Um, but it's it, it was a really it was, it was really fun to write. And Kalliak, I think, is a a really fascinating character to to learn more about.
0: There's an old joke over here in England that the Irish just picked some Scrabble letters and threw them on a board and made their names.
2: <laughs> I can, yeah, I I definitely have some um some there, there's some Gaelic words in, in the book, and I know I know my audiobook uh, narrator is going to be like, well, how do you pronounce this? Going to be like, I have no idea. Let us find an actual Gaelic speaker so I don't destroy this lovely language. <laughs>
1: I'm impressed with you saying that phrase as it is. I'm not even going to attempt to repeat it because it sounds, I, I, I would butcher it.
2: I, I was very careful. I like marked down a couple and I was like, I'm going to pronounce these right. My, I'm, you know, I, I'm American, but my my great grandmother came over from, from Ireland in um, the 1920s. And so I was like, at least for her sake, I don't want like my ancestors, my very ancient ancestors to be like weeping. So I'll do my best. <laughs>
1: Where can people find you and follow you online for book updates?
2: Okay, so I have I have an Instagram um, at Megan W Barnard uh, B A R N A R D, and then I have a Substack newsletter that goes out weekly called Ordinary Extraordinary, based on About Time, which is an excellent movie and everyone should see it. Um, and then I also have a TikTok that is under, let me check because I don't remember. Okay, a TikTok that's at Megan W. Barnard where I post about writing, I post writing tips. Um, I post queering tips because I li- used to be a literary agent and I know how very, very hard publishing is. Um, and also most important, I post pictures and videos of my dog. I have a Sheltie who's three years old called Pippin who is adorable. So. Most of what I do is show him off um, occasionally him sitting sadly with my books because he's you know I dare to put something near him (laughs) (laughs) so that's where that's where you can find me.
1: We'll put all of that in our episode description so people can find you and follow
0: you. Thanks for hanging out with us today and again special thanks to Megan. Follow us on Instagram at the podcast for more book-based content. And if you're liking what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. Also, check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. You can also show your support by voting for us for the Listener's Choice Awards at the British Podcast Awards. To vote, simply visit www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting. Search for Demythifying using our full pod name. See you again next time and check us out wherever you get your podcasts. She's been Lauren, I've been Charlotte and today we've been turning pages with Megan Barnard.